Welcome back to another Cardinals Off Day podcast. The Cardinals are 55 and 56 on pace to win 80 games. Um, but hopefully that'll be about the last that we're talking about the current Cardinals during this particular podcast. And uh, the reason for that is uh, Ben and I are very lucky uh, once again to have uh, prospect guru and friend of the pod, Kyle Reese, here with us. Uh, Kyle, how you doing? I'm doing really well, guys. It's a pleasure to be here. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much. So um, I think we're going to dive into it. And I know Ben and I have a number of, of things we just kind of wanted to bounce off you and, and talk about. But I will kick things off um, talking about the the Cardinals draft and the Cardinals draft picks. Um, and, and I'm just I'm interested to get your thoughts kind of overall on their draft. Um, just, just to frame it, I guess, a little bit with my own thoughts, you know, um, the older I get, the more I look at the draft, it, to put it in fantasy baseball terms, not as a, a snake draft, but as an auction, because there's we've got slot values, we've got a total budget. And so that's where, uh, you know, we thought it would actually be interesting to talk with you after everyone had signed, because then we kind of can see basically what's this sort of portfolio of guys that they're bringing forward. So I'm interested in, in your thoughts on everyone, but I'll say myself specifically, the three names that jump out to me are Josh Baez, uh, Gordon Graceffo, and Alec Willis, specifically because those are the over-slot guys. So those seem like, you know, again, in that sort of auction format, those are the guys that the Cardinals, you know, really paid up for. So, uh, so Kyle, I just, I'd love to know your thoughts kind of in general on the guys they picked, but, you know, specifically what made those three guys guys that were worth going over-slot for? You know, Baez is really the gem of the draft. Uh, I'm not the only one who will tell you that. I would suspect that any draft service would tell you that as well. Any scouting service would tell you that. Uh, and if you were to have a candid conversation with the Cardinals brass, they would tell you that the the, the gem of their draft is, is Joshua Baez. I think when we look back at the draft in five, six, seven years, we'll look at him and what he did, and that'll probably have a lot to do with how we view the success of this draft. That's mm-hmm. not to diminish the first round pick, Michael McCreevy or third, the third pick Ryan Holgate or the third round pick Zane Mills or uh, Gordon Graceffo, Alec Willis, all of those guys. It's not to diminish what all of those guys are capable of or might do at the major league level. If they make it, uh, it's just when you go as far over slot, you know, almost, uh, I think it was $800,000 or $850,000 over slot mm-hmm. to sign someone like Joshua Baez with, his immense tools and talents, that's that's kind of like hinging a lot of your draft success on him specifically. Uh, in comparison, my, my favorite thing about the 2021 draft in comparison to the 2020 draft is that the slots were locked in. They didn't change. Uh, you know, every year it's supposed to increase incrementally. And from 2020 to 2021, it didn't change. That was part of the agreement that they made when they were making the 60-game season for 2020 and uh so that would mean that even with the 60 game season they found a way to screw uh amateur players out of the free market is what you're saying that's it absolutely (laughs) absolutely yeah that's uh so so because of that it's fun you know last year the cardinals drafted 19th they drafted 18th this year uh they drafted 54th last year. They drafted 54th this year. They drafted 70th last year. They drafted 70th this year. So it's kind of fun to like see that juxtaposition. Uh, they saved about $150,000 last year when they drafted Jordan Walker first overall. And they saved about, man, I'm going to get it wrong, but I think they saved nearly $300,000 
when they drafted Michael McGreevy. And uh, that like those are huge savings. I, I want to say it's a difference of or no, it would have been like five hundred thousand or six hundred thousand with McGreevy. Yeah, and actually, yeah. I have it up here, Kyle. Yeah, it was his. They signed him for two point seven five, and his pick value was three point four eight. So yeah, it was more closer to five. Yeah, I got my numbers mixed up. I was thinking nineteenth and eighteenth, and because eighteenth was like three point one three, right? Or nineteenth rather was like three point one three as the bonus or 3.3 or something like that. I, I'm, I'm all jacked up, but yeah. <laughs> but well, anyways, like, uh, so uh, go on. No, I'm sorry. no I was just going to say, uh, <clears throat> it's been really amazing to see major league baseball evolve with the draft and they actually have it calculated down to the dollar, how much they're screwing over the amateur talent. Like, <laughs> you know, when, when I was, you know, younger and following prospects cause, and, you know, like J.D. Drew was really kind of the the first player where, as a kid, I kind of became aware of the whole dynamic of how the draft works, right? Mm-hmm. Because, you know, when you're a kid, everyone's dream is to be a Major League Baseball player. And they totally maximize that leverage, too, kind of like oh, to yeah. the greater populace. Like, get a load of this guy. You know, he just got everyone's dream, and he's holding out for, you know, however many millions J.D. Drew was holding out for um but now they they have basically boxed teams in so much like each pick this is how much we expect you to pay for this pick and it's uh it's really fascinating and it's easy to kind of get a little bit confused because all money is fungible and where it goes down and where it goes up you know it it shows you how loose the slot value is but it's been interesting to see the way the cardinals have leveraged this system uh because they they seem to take you know i'm i'm gonna say like a low ceiling low floor guy like a mcgreevy and then they'll go you know kind of wish upon a star with a tool shed type player and Mm -hmm. uh overpay for him and it's been really interesting to see the the way that they uh use their draft picks to kind of set that higher floor in some areas and then, you know, hope that they catch lightning in a bottle with one of these big talents. And you start to hear stories that, uh, you know, kids, they're just so excited about being drafted that they don't realize what they're saying. Uh, Like, for instance, the Cardinals in the 19th round drafted a first baseman out of East Carolina named uh, Thomas Francisco. And when they were interviewing Francisco after the draft, he was talking about how, yeah, you know, I had teams calling me in earlier rounds saying that they were going to offer me this much money. Could I take it? I had a minute to decide. And then I tell them yes. And then they still wouldn't pick me. And uh, so that, you know, I, I love that little interview, that little soundbite, because he was giving an insight that I don't think a lot of fans have into the draft, um, it, you know, from rounds from rounds one all the way through 20 now. That's that's the way the draft goes. It's chaos. It's chaos for the front offices, but it's chaos for the kids, too, and their representatives. You know, you're talking about a 19th round, a kid who was drafted in the 19th round, uh, who who is going through an entire three day process, waiting to hear his name called, who thinks his name's going to get called. And really, it just boils down to the, the dollar, the dollar minutia. You know, the, the you, you nailed it with what you were saying, you know, uh, Thomas Francisco could have gone in the third round. He could have gone in the eighth round. But what these teams are doing, what these front offices are doing, is they're on the phone with four or five different prospects and just trying to get whoever will take the least amount of money uh, out of that group that they decided, all right, this is the this is who we're going to select. It's going to be one of these five, 10, five to ten kids. 
And whichever one of them is says, I'll take the, the $700, 700K cut, uh, that's who we're drafting. And it's like that from round one all the way through. Uh, well, I, yeah. And I think it's particularly interesting this year because clearly McGreevy is one of those guys, it yes. seems like. And, you know, you, you tend to think about your your top pick is your, like, top pick, and that's going to be your great. But that that's, that's not the case. It seems like at least my impression of it, and tell me if you guys have a different impression, is this Baez pick was something that they were zeroing in on. And so whoever they took in that first pick was all about, you know, starting the process of saving the kind of money that they were going to need and, to save to go really big there. And it seems pretty clear to me that Flores is knows what McCreevy will, you know, the, the chaos of the third round guy is not the first round guy, right? Like the Cardinals have, you know, probably between three and five guys, some that they hope fall, you know, so that they think might realistically fall to them. And they know what those players will sign for if they are selected here. And they have a pretty good understanding with their representative that, if you don't agree to this, we're not going to draft you here and or, or this player here. And mm-hmm. I, I think that there's a degree of a kind of a kabuki dance on draft day for those first round picks where you'll see the folks on Twitter. Well, you know, this makes sense if they select someone in a later round and pay them over slot. And I'm like, well, that's exactly what's happening. They drafted this person to go get someone uh, and pay them over slot later on, and it's. The, but also, it, we don't we don't know as we're watching it too. No, and, and right. Well, I was wa- I mean, I was watching your uh, prospects after dark live stream on draft day, which frankly every Cardinals fan should do. It's it's always amazing, and it, it seemed like it was a really interesting conversation because that first night happens, and this is the only pick we've seen of the Cardinals draft, and it seemed like you the industry Cardinals Twitter, everyone was like, like Michael McGreevy, like that. It's pretty underwhelming in that moment. But now as I look back at everything they did, I kind of like it. And I feel like it made a lot of sense to build that portfolio that they built. The McGreevy pick was interesting uh, because I hadn't done the draft research that I had done in prior, prior years. Uh, My, you know, I usually I'm, I'm in, I'm draft researching for months, months and months ahead of time. I had a very casual eye on the draft this year. And it wasn't until like the two or three weeks leading up to the draft that I really dug in. And I swear uh, I have DMs with people where I kept telling them, I think the pick is Michael McCreevy. Uh, there was just something about him. Now, his his arsenal, the ability to throw strikes, it wasn't that. It was... You know, I'm reading about uh, winter league ball. I'm reading about the team leader. I'm I'm listening to interviews with this kid where he's he just sounds like a leader. He sounds like the the mm-hmm. same audio clips that you hear out of all of Flores' picks. He he was an honor roll student, and it just seemed like that would be that would be the pick if the Cardinals specifically decided to get aggressive with their bonus pool. There is another aspect of the bonus pool that not a lot of fans realize, and I can't say if this happened with the Cardinals and Baez or not. Uh, but there are, for a couple of years now, there's been this under rumble of teams that will price players out of the first round or out of the second round. So we'll just use the Cardinals and Baez as an example here. I don't know if it happened or not. But if if Baez's representatives are getting word that he's out of the first round, then what the Cardinals will do is they'll say, hey, look, we'll buy you in the second round for 25 
Uh, but you have to promise that if any team tries to draft you ahead, you're not going to take anything less than 2.5. And that ends up being kind of like this unspoken rule. And that's something that from what I'm hearing is happening a little bit more frequently. So to the Cardinals point, and in my mind, I feel like that probably didn't happen this year. I feel like the Cardinals knew that a lot of those college pitchers that they were going to draft, they were going to go collegiate arm, uh, were kind of all in the same group. And they probably did like we right. thought. We're just going to take whichever one uh, we can get for the cheapest amount. And McGreevy hit because he was younger and he throws multiple pitches, even though they're average-ish, and he throws right. strikes. And it was just perfect timing for him. Uh, and then decided to allocate those funds however best they could with the second pick, uh, whether that be Baez or whoever else was a high school player that super toolsy that they could get there. I do think it's interesting. And I, again, the Mason win Jordan Walker was so perfectly orchestrated last year uh, that I don't know if they'll ever hit that way. I don't know if they'll ever have that success again, where, you know, you get Jordan Walker at a little bit of a discount and then you give extra money to Mason win. I don't know if they'll ever get lucky to get those two athletes or, with their first two picks ever again. That, that's a crapshoot. That's that's as good of a first pick and a second pick as I've ever seen the Cardinals make. Uh, and it, you know, Mason Wynn was really highly thought of. And the only knock on him is like he got in trouble for being past curfew uh, one time. But other than that, he's a team leader. He's an emotional guy. He's, it, but in a positive way, you know, he, he's the clubhouse guru. And uh, I, just the way that those bonuses went and then hearing all these these rumblings of, you know, potential and not with the Cardinals specifically, I don't want, but like uh, of rumblings of teams kind of like jockeying, kind of uh, making it possible to get the guy that they want in the second round. It, it was like, it, I look back on it now when I see Wynn and Walker and I think, how, how did they pull that off? Uh, uh, because that's to do that. And then compare it to Baez and McGreevy this year, not to like, I think Michael McGreevy is going to be a very uh, useful arm, but it, it just goes to show you how how impressive the Walker and Wind draft was specifically. Well, and I think it goes back to Trajan Fletcher too. Feels like to me that was the first guy that I remember seeing them yeah. basically pull this move with, and it, it seemed to me, and 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 with with all of these too, I think with 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 Baez, with with Mason Wynn, and with uh, with Trajan Fletcher, what it looks like to me is the Cardinals saying look, we're not going to get a top 10 pick. We're not going to get a top five pick. They might next year, but, (laughs) um, you know, they're generally not going to get those picks. So how do we get, how do we get a talent? How do we get a top 10 talent? And you're not going to get it at your, you know, 18, whatever, you know, pick in the first round, you know, you're going to get your kind of like polished, you know, polished college arm type guy. So it, it seems like this idea of going big, on a toolsy high schooler who it seems likely or at least a good chance that in a couple of years, these guys could be those like top five type picks that, that that's what it seems to me like they're doing. And that, I mean, that's what th- I think that's three years in a row now they've kind of done that. So, I mean, that seems like that's a, I mean, that, that's a just Randy Flores move at this point. And it's, I, I like it. I mean, it's, I love the, I love the playing for upside there. And I love that you, you know, you still get a first round pick that, I mean, this year, you know, and you mentioned all the leadership things, which I think is really interesting. I've heard you mention that before. And that really does seem like something the Cardinals are kind of prioritizing. But I mean, also just, is there any more classic Cardinals draft pick than like highly polished, you know, advanced college pitcher? (laughs) No, yeah. I immediately thought of Lance Lynn. 
um, when this, because I had the same, basically the same reaction uh, to another alliterative name. But, you know, when they they announced the pick this year, uh, I immediately thought of Lance Lynn. And then I was also reminded of when Lance Lynn unlocked additional miles per hour on his fastball. And like, as word spread that Lynn was like sitting in the, you know, 94, like, kind of touching 95 and people were like what lance lynn he throws sinker balls you know like and uh and now of course we know lance lynn only throws fastballs um but uh i i it it was a little bit of a trip down memory lane i was a little bit surprised uh baseball america announced their updated top 30 for the cardinals this week and i was a little bit uh surprised that they uh you know, they shuffled uh, McGreevy up into the number four spot. And that felt to me like maybe it was due to the expectation that he's going to be a pretty fast mover through the system. Uh, what do you think about that, Kyle? I think that's it. I think that's it exactly. He has a couple other things that are working from him from a scouting service standpoint. Uh, one is how young he is. You know, he was one of the youngest 20-year-olds in the draft. That bodes well for him. He's put on a little bit more muscle, uh, and when he put on muscle, his velocity kicked up a little bit. Uh, Baseball America has been the high service on McGreevy throughout the whole process, and I think that that's you know, a little confirmation bias in there as well. Um, I, with Baseball America, they are at the forefront of everything. I, I, don't, I don't mean to question anything that Baseball America does, but like – the reason I love Prospects Live uh, is because they're they're completely independent. They're a scouting service, right? And what Baseball America has now is they have kind of a, I don't know, some type of, not partnership because that's not fair, but they have dialogue with major league teams and major league front offices. And what we're seeing more and more maybe throughout the league with Baseball America's services is that maybe they're a little bit more steered by major league organizations. Mm-hmm. So I, I think, I think the combination of them just being high on McGreevy from the standpoint, and then also, you know, talking with the Cardinals front office and seeing all of these really developed yet raw talent because McGreevy is developed, but raw, like uh, because he can throw strikes and, and because he's so consistent about throwing strikes, it kind of negates some of the rawness that he still possesses. But that rawness is what allows him to potentially be someone like George Kirby, who is uh, Seattle's one of Seattle's best prospect, uh, drafted out of Elon, the pick after the Cardinals drafted Zach Thompson in 2019. Uh, Kirby was kind of the same thing, throwing. He would be able to get it up to the high 90s, but he would throw mid to low 90s, but with five, four to five pitches that would flash average at times. And now he's up throwing like he threw 102 the other day, and. He was one of the youngest kids in the class and he was a smart kid and et cetera, et cetera. All these things are hitting. And I think that that plays into what baseball America is doing. Well, you uh, talking about Zach Thompson and everything hitting. um, Maybe I should say the opposition has been hitting him. Uh, His, uh, his velocity has not been very heartening this year uh, and his stuff hasn't been either. I haven't caught a lot of them, uh, but from what I have seen, it is, I don't want to say the worst case scenario, but like there was a very real uh, circumstance in my mind where Thompson would be in the major league bullpen right now. 
Um, and it seems like he is just not there and his arm action doesn't look all that great to me. I, what are your thoughts on Thompson uh, this year? So I missed his his second to last start, but I watched his most recent. And I've seen all of them but the second to last one. And it just seemed to me. So he gets really frustrated with himself when he doesn't throw strikes with his fastball. And he's totally in his own head. And it seems like at the beginning of every one of his starts, his arm is fast. His action is good. And then he starts throwing balls, works behind in counts, which is the one thing he needs to clean up above anything else. Like, I think he can almost, you know, his slider is really good. His changeup's really good. His curveball is a little too slow for my liking, a little too loopy, and he definitely uh, slows down his arm to throw that curve. But he can almost get away with having a slow arm action if he's getting ahead in, in counts. And he hasn't been doing that. That's the one thing that's hurt him more than anything. But it seemed like in his last start against Durham earlier in the week, he was back to repeating his delivery and speeding up his arm again. Now, the velocity is a really interesting thing because he and Libertor are suffering from the same thing right now, which is whenever they have diminished velocity with Libertor, it's kind of like 90 to 92. With Thompson, it's been 89-90. When they have diminished velocity, they definitely do not have as much success. But then what you see out of Matthew Libertor since coming back from the Futures game is early on in the start, he'll throw 94, 95, 96, maybe even touch 97, be unhittable for three innings, and then come fourth inning, he's throwing 92 and getting smoked. Uh, Thompson did a better job of keeping his velocity against Durham earlier in the week. And the only thing that really hurt him, he was he was 91 consistently, hit 92 a couple times, 91, 90 consistently. Uh, but what he did is after those first two innings where he labored, he started throwing strikes early. And that's it's a key for every pitcher. It's an easy thing to say. Uh, it's an easy scouting thing. It's a throwaway line because it's, it, it, you could say it about Lance Lynn. You could say it about John Gant. You could say it maybe not about John Gant, but you could say it about Daniel Ponce de Leon. You could, uh, you know, with, with all these pitchers, it's such a key. But for someone like Zach Thompson, who it seems to me is dealing with some type of and maybe not in his last three starts, because he has been statistically good in his last three starts, uh, who early on was dealing with some type of confidence issue, throwing his stuff, who gets down on himself when he, like visually down on himself when he doesn't throw strikes specifically with his fastball. Uh, I think it just illustrates how important it is for this advanced, accelerated lefty to get ahead in strikes, uh, get ahead in counts, I mean. Yeah. When I, when I see him struggling, it reminds me of, the downside of all of those years of the Cardinals drafting those polished college arms. And I think about like Clayton Mortensen or just any of those guys who they drafted who, you know, came in, you know, and it was always like, this guy's, this guy's just about ready, you know, for the big leagues. And the problem was they had, they had kind of topped out and they, they had a really hard time, you know, put, so, so they came in at a pretty advanced level, but there just wasn't a lot of, you know, growth left there. And, and I don't know if that's the case with, with Thompson, but especially a, not just a college arm, but a college arm who had success at a really prestigious program, kind of high level program there. You know, I, I don't know. I think the, you, you wonder about that. Uh, so, some of those guys, I, I, I would worry about that with like a Kumar rocker too. And I know he's got injury issues. He's got these other things, but to me that th- these look like the kind of guys that are like, you know, they, you know, Hey, they peaked early. Right. I remember, you know, Brad Osmondson when we were 12 years old was this like giant who threw heat, you know, and then like, 
you know, sophomore year, I was standing next to Brad Osmondson. I was like, I'm like two inches taller than you now. Like, right. So, uh, no, but I don't know. So I, th- that's one thing I always worry about when I see those, you know, those advanced guys is like, well, maybe they're just topping out too early. Yeah. And there were, you know, from day one with the draft, uh, I mean, obviously this predates day one with the draft, but those arm issues from the get go, you know, that was the big gamble with, with Zach Thompson. And I, I don't know if he's suffering from arm issues now he's pitching, he's pitching regularly. You know, I, it's probably not fair to speculate, but those are, you know, a shoulder and an elbow at various stages of his collegiate career. He got himself in better shape, but there there's underlying reasons to be concerned more than just yeah. a kid struggling at an advanced level. Yeah. Well, and speaking of arm issues, uh, let's talk about Alec Willis, because if I understand correctly, that's kind of the issue there, too. And he's the one other guy. Now, now uh, Gordon Graceffo, they went a little bit they, they over slot on. They went about 150000 over slot on. But Willis was a $200,000 slot pick that they went to a million on. So they went really big on him as well. Um, I know he's got some arm injuries, but uh, it seems to me he's he's on the pitching side, but it still seems to me like he's kind of uh, it's a little bit of that move we talked about before about going after this real kind of, you know, tool shed with maybe some question marks early. Am I understanding that right? Or I'd love to know more about him because I really don't know that much. Yeah, I um, Alec Willis was another kid who really stood out to me uh, when I was doing the draft prep. I, I, I'm always a little leery of, of prep arms in the first place, high school arms in the first place. But what I liked about Willis, uh, other than maybe some injury history there, which we'll get into in a second, was that he was a pitcher in his senior year who had been clocked at the low 90s, who was getting up to 95, 96. Instead of being a pitcher and you know, an 18-year-old pitcher throwing 95, 96, getting up to 102. You know, to me, I'd rather have the kid who's gaining velocity into the mid nineties as a teenager, then gaining velocity into the triple digits as a teenager. Because in my mind, I'm thinking that arm, that, that time bomb is ticking and it's ticking quicker and louder and faster. Right. Uh, so I like the fact that he was putting on velocity. He was gaining velocity as the season was going on. He, he has a great frame. He's like, he's every bit of like six foot four, you know, 220 pounds it's just a really good pitching frame with a very easy mechanic, a very easy pitching mechanic. It doesn't do anything weird. It's straightforward. There isn't a hitch in it. it, it he just seems like a pitchability uh, prep arm who throws a, a very interesting slider and a curveball, which I also like. I like the fact that you know it, it always seems like there's a changeup in a slider or a curveball in a in a in a, in a changeup. And the problem is the changeup with most prep kids is either so advanced or it's not advanced enough. And with the changeup being such a feel pitch, I'm always a little leery about with the prep kids. If if you're banking on them developing a feel for a changeup, I think that that's one of those things that's easier said than done because of how much of a feel pitch the changeup is. You know, you can't get away with not having feel of it for a game, even if you're a 19-year-old pitching at low A or the complex league. So uh, I like that. I like that all of his stuff was ticking in the right direction. He was one of these pop-up prospects who wasn't really on anyone's radar a year ago and then really kind of blew up. But same thing with Michael McCreevy. Like, uh, McCreevy was on some radar, but, was you know, was on the prospect radar, on the draft radar, but he really blew up over the last year. And that's another staple of the Flores draft. Kind of the same thing happens with Graceffo here in a little bit. And 
Uh, but no, he's just, he's a really interesting kid who, uh, again, I, I, and I said it with Ben talking on conversations with Saruti with uh, Ben Saruti earlier uh, last week. And I, I just said, like, if you're going to maybe play the draft a little bit more conservatively from rounds, we'll just say round three to round 10, uh, where you're, you're focusing in on college players, specifically college pitchers, who are more command first than anything else, not to diminish the stuff of people like uh, uh, Zane Mills or Gordon Graceffo or Alfredo Ruiz or uh, Austin Love. Uh, If you're going to go a little bit more conservative, I love the fact that you take a gamble or a gambit uh, with a seventh round pick, a prep arm in the seventh round for a million dollars. You know, you've kind of nickeled and dimed your way uh, through the rest of the draft. You might as well get aggressive before you get to round 10 uh, with a, a prospect that has a ceiling of a third round pick or a second round, second round pick. Somebody who kind of slipped through the cracks, who you can touch base with later on in the day two of the draft between rounds six and uh, 10 and, and get a feel for and maybe somebody willing to take a discount from where they were earlier to be drafted instead of going the collegiate route. And I think that's pretty much what happened with Willis. Uh, I could be wrong about Graceffo. Now, you'll have to pardon me about Graceffo because there are conflicting reports about Gordon Graceffo. Uh, I actually think that he was signed for 500K under. Uh, MLB tweeted, and the MLB draft tracker, it says like 500K, but Jim Callis reported 300K, and Baseball America also reported 300K. Okay. Okay. So, so I actually, the only reason I know that it's 300K, other than having to touch base with uh, somebody in the Graceffo camp to find out for sure, uh-huh. uh, is is if you do the math, the only way that they stayed underneath their budget and the 5% is to get him for the 300K. Okay. Okay. Well, that makes sense too. I mean, that didn't seem, that, that seemed like an odd place to be getting some extra value there, but I don't know that much about him. And I thought, well, you know, if, if they, you know, he was somebody they really wanted there and that was going to, what, what was going to get him, that makes sense. But we were saying makes a lot more sense. So, yeah, but, you know, while we're talking about him, he's another, uh, for, for being a, a fifth round pick, uh, he is a, a really interesting guy. A Villanova, um, a Villanova righty. He was another one of these somewhat pop up prospects where he had never really thrown above 90, 91 miles an hour. And then this year for Villanova, he got his velocity up into the mid nineties and he, he kind of matches it with a really good changeup and a really good slider. And I've only seen a little bit of him. Uh, I watched like two or three of his starts after they drafted him. And I don't know which one of his breaking pitches are better. I, I think that they're both minor league average right now, which means that they could probably trend to both being above average if he keeps developing them. But he's another one of these leader kids. He's another one of these honor roll kids. Uh, he is fiery on the mound. And when you get past Baez and when you get past McGreevy, he's actually my favorite of the pitchers that they drafted in this draft. I just think uh, a lot like Andre Payante in 2019, uh, there are – he just seems like the kind of guy who will hold his own organizationally and who will eventually make a major league debut uh, in some capacity or the other. I, I just think he has, and, you know, he throws strikes. Uh, he doesn't have the command of McGreevy. He's not going to, like, walk one person every 700 innings. But he uh, he has really good command. I like I like Graceffo a lot. I think that uh, that pick is, is going to pay for itself pretty quickly. Interesting. Interesting. Um, ben, did you have any other 
draft related questions because I had some other questions that kind of went more into the current system, but I don't want to leave the draft if there were other things you were interested in. Uh, no, I'm I'm ready to, to go on uh, and talk about the system at large. Yeah, and so I don't. I mean, I this this really shoots us from the the draft all the way to the top of the system. But you know, we talked a little bit about uh, Thompson already, and I guess one thing I'm I'm wondering about a lot as I watch now, because believe it or not, when I'm watching the St. Louis Cardinals right now, I'm thinking a lot about the 2022 St. Louis Cardinals and thinking yeah. like, what's what is this team going to look like next year? Because it's not so important to me, you know, which. Uh, washed 38 year old lefty is starting for him <laughs> you know this the rest of this season so I, I'm just I'm curious who in the system do you see making a big league debut next year and what kind of roles do you see for for some of these guys they've obviously they've got you know th- they've got three guys in the ml in the you know pipeline top 100 they've got a you know a couple other guys that are pretty advanced uh, I don't know who are you who do you see maybe stepping in next season? I think if you were to ask the Cardinals for an office, they would say that they they would, you know, by midseason at the very latest, you're going to have Nolan Gorman and Matthew Libertor at the major league, major league level. Mm-hmm. And I feel like dating back to Oscar Tavares, the late Oscar Tavares, the one thing that this organization has kind of done that gets itself into trouble is bank on the production of young players maybe earlier than it's time to bank on them. You know, I, I think you know, the, the one thing about trading for Jason Hayward, you heard it over and over again, is when Oscar passed, when OT passed, uh, they felt like they had to adjust. And the, the passing of Oscar Tavares put them on a course that they weren't prepared for. And I try to keep that in my mind when I think about just the prospects that we hear them pumping up and pumping up and pumping up. Not about, you know, the, the, the untimely death of, of Oscar Tavares, but just how this organization definitely believes in their high caliber prospects and banks on them, uh, doesn't just hope and then right. adjust. They, they bank on them to perform. So those are the first two. Uh, they're they're well, both they, not- they, they bank on them to perform and they also bank on them to save Bill DeWitt money, I think is what it comes down to. And this is something that Ben and I have talked about a, a lot lately is just the the lack of depth that they've, they've, you know, been building in. And, and I guess just to stick with Gorman and get to sort of my concern, I think, you know, coming into next year, what do the, what do the Cardinals need? They need a second baseman and they need, uh, and they also to some extent need a designated hitter. Cause I think we assume the designated hitter is going to be there. I think they should acquire some major league talent for those positions and then have Nolan Gorman potentially work into that mix somewhere. I'm concerned that they're going to pencil Nolan Gorman in as both the second baseman and the designated hitter and leave it at that. No, I think, I think you're dead on. I, I have almost, it's funny, you know, I'm a, I'm a big supporter of Juan Yepes. I would love to see, and I don't know how you do it because he's mostly a first baseman and kind of a third baseman. He doesn't really play the outfield all that often, a corner outfield, but I want the Cardinals to get Juan Yepes at bats at the major league level as soon as possible. Because to me, like you're saying, when you, who's watching the Cardinals for the 2021 team? Like, I mean, I am because I love baseball and I want to root for them in 2021, but uh, this year's kind of a wash. Now, if you're looking at it realistically, anything could happen, but it's kind of a wash. You kind of have to look forward to 2022. And I think that the way to do that is maybe get guys up here like Kramer Robertson, like Juan Yepes, Uh, even, even digging a little deeper guys like Austin Warner, the left-handed relief pitcher or Grant Black, the right-handed relief pitcher, Uh, you know, just, 
get some guys up here instead of having TJ McFarland give you innings because he's not going to be around in a year. Maybe get some of these other guys up here and just see what you can get. But to your point, uh, and the reason I bring up Yepes is in my mind, like Yepes would be a good DH candidate. He, he could get you, uh, you know, he could spell Goldie. He could spell Arenado, you know, maybe get uh, O'Neill a break here and there, maybe get uh, Carlson a break here and there in a corner and, and kind of adjust on the fly. But that, I don't think, A, I don't think there's any way we see him in 2021, although I think that that's a, it's a terrible, terrible waste. But I think in 2022, I think that they have him, they have Nolan Gorman slotted in in their minds in that DH second base role. Uh, what have we seen all of these competitive teams do at the deadline? They, their benches got better. Major League caliber benches got better. Uh, their bullpens got better. Major League caliber bullpens. And we haven't seen the Cardinals make any moves at the deadline uh, other than John Lester and J.A. Happ, you know, and trading Tommy Pham uh, in four years, three years. It, so not only are they maybe a little slow making moves in the offseason, but they've definitely been stale at the break for all of these years. So they're not bringing in reinforcements that way. Uh, I'm, I'm with you. I think, uh, you know, even if it's guys like Brad Miller or Matt Weeders or yeah. – you know, uh, those are the kind of guys that the card. I want to see the Cardinals bring in. You know, I agree. I, Brad, Brad Miller is exactly the kind that they should have signed a Brad Miller this season, and perhaps they should have signed the Brad Miller this season, right? And that's exactly the kind of guy that they should be looking for next year for that kind of that kind of depth as well. Yeah, I, and at the at the same time, they need to be willing to adjust when the Brad Miller or a Brad Miller isn't hitting, right? Uh, Instead but that's, of just but that's the great thing about about a Brad Miller too is that's a guy who you can uh, you can cut loose too you know yeah. so I mean that's where I, I know everybody's you know everybody wants to get the Trevor stories and you want to get you know the like the huge names and of course those are really fun but I think that having you know having those having those Brad Miller guys I think would have benefited this team as much as you know potentially some of those bigger names. I'm with you. I agree. I was just saying that like in the lineup, you know, because in 2020, he's, he got off to that, Brad Miller got off to that hot start right. and, then, and then was was terrible for like three weeks and was still hitting fourth every day. Yeah. Like it, it, bring them in, use them. But if they're not useful, then don't use them. Like that's the, to your point, like that's the Brad Miller role. That's the, uh, you know, that's that utility role. That's what that role should be for. It shouldn't be to slot in a lineup for 60 games in a row and measure right. forwarder. Well, and I feel, like the Card- I feel like the Cardinals, like we used to have like a Brandon Moss or somebody like that, right? We used to pick up these kind of guys. Ty Wigginton. Ty yeah. Wigginton, yeah. Exactly. To go back to the most successful example of all, no, but you know they they would they would acquire some of these guys in these sort of you know tweener roles, and it just seems like that's the, they're they're loath to do that anymore. Um, yeah. So anyway, so anyway, so I but so Gorman, you think you're hoping that you know it's not hey he's our starting second baseman and DH from day one. He's going to bat twice every day. You're hoping they don't do that, but maybe there's other bodies to fill those roles and as he develops you think maybe by mid-season or so he'll just sort of naturally you know work his way into a, a spot there as am That's i, how I would handle it. yeah if, if i was in the front office there are few players in this organization and not to diminish the talent of that of the cardinals organization uh but there are a few players that i feel comfortable right now banking on to be a major league contributor and granted big things can happen in the offseason 
and Nolan Gorman has done a great job of learning second base and getting better at it. He's done a better job of hitting the ball to the opposite field, uh, being a little bit more defensive late in counts. But I think that a team that wants to be competitive over 162 games needs to be prepared to have guys in place and not hope for the best. Because when you hope for the best and you have John Gant in your rotation, you know, you have Tommy Edmond hitting leadoff every day until all of a sudden he's, you know, not. Uh, I just want to see them more prepared than giving it over to the kids. Yeah. Oh, I, I would be shocked if uh, Gorman overtakes Edmund. Yeah. If, if Schilt has anything to say about it. Yeah. Because um, Edmund seems to be a Mike guy. Uh, if I can bring back that term uh, from the Matheny uh, era. Um, but Gorman is one of the most interesting, I think, position player prospects uh, that the team has drafted and brought up. You know, Carlson obviously is very interesting. O'Neill they traded for. But Gorman profiles to be the type of hitter that this team needs. Left-handed power. Um, cause this lineup is too right-handed and I, I think he could have a role. Um, I think the, it will be very interesting because the front office is going to have flexibility in terms of payroll because they painted themselves into a corner with Fowler and Carpenter and, um, Andrew Miller. And so those contracts are coming off the books and they can go out and do what they have done historically. You know, you'll recall they signed Mark Ellis to basically block Colton Wong. They signed Lance Berkman to block Alan Craig for 2012. I, that is their, that is more of Mosaic's traditional go-to move. And I'm, I'm very interested to see how they approach Gorman. Cause you know, they've quite clearly been very aggressive with his, with promoting him and you know it wouldn't surprise me kyle if we're maybe sitting here talking in the off season and i ask you what does nolan gorman have left to prove in triple a yeah. <laughs> and and your answer might be well he needs to work on second base a little bit um or it could be i think he's probably ready he doesn't you know there's not much left for him to do you know, that wouldn't surprise me. So I, I am very interested uh, to see how that over the off season and then into spring training, how that gets framed and how the team approaches it. Uh, someone else I'm really interested about is uh, Jake Woodford. No, just kidding. Um, <laughs> um, I, I had a question on Twitter uh, from a follower a little while back, and they asked me what uh, Oviedo's ceiling is now. And I told them that, you know, I thought like probably best case scenario for Oviedo would be like a number three pitcher because I've uh, with age, I've just stopped hoping that players can develop control uh you know, they, it's, it's rare that they do that. And, and Ben and I have been texting about it in the Alex Reyes con, uh, context. And basically what people want Alex Reyes to do is just basically Randy Johnson. And that's the only person who's ever done it and, uh, you know, and had a, a long career, but I, I wanted to get your thoughts, um, because Oviedo is ju is just a pretty confounding pitcher to me. Because there are moments where it just looks like he's 
figuring out uh, major league hitters, trusting his stuff. And then he seems to just get sideways, um, you know, and I don't know how much of it is mental uh, versus physical, but what do you see for Johan Oviedo in 2022 with the Cardinals? I would suspect that the Cardinals will bring him in to spring training, uh, ready for him to fill a rotation role. I think that that is part of the reason why he is back down at Memphis, uh, which when we did our first uh, talk here, we this is what we talked about, what we wanted. You know, I understand that injuries and everything got them in a position where he had to be in the rotation. Like, I, I get the dynamics of it all. But uh, I think that if you were to ask the Cardinals, the Cardinals will tell you that he's competing for a rotation spot uh, at the back end of the rotation in 2022. What I've seen out of Johan Oviedo almost since the minute I could watch him on a daily basis with Peoria is someone who would flash good command, uh, but never did it consistently. And I think it's gotten better over the years. I think it gets a little bit better and a little bit better. Uh, But to me, I kind of follow you, Ben, uh, like your thoughts about it all. And for me, I never think of Alex Reyes because Alex Reyes is a whole different beast. For me, it's Henesis Cabrera, right? When the Cardinals traded for Henesis Cabrera, the command was the big issue because you could see how filthy he was. And the, the mechanics were the issue. And you always like the thought was if you could just get his, his mechanics under wrap, that the command would come with it. And that necessarily that hasn't necessarily been the case, but we have seen Henesis Cabrera's command get better than what it was. Uh, I don't know if it'll ever be better than it is right now. I, I think that he's plateaued as far as from a command standpoint. It's not like all of a sudden he's not going to walk people. Like that's always going to be a part right. of his game. Right. Uh, but I, I think Johan Oviedo has that capability. Uh, just the little increments that I've seen him get a little bit better and a little bit better and a little bit better. But there are times, and it's been like this since his time in Peoria, where he just doesn't have it. You know, he might have it in the first inning and then loses it completely in the second. It throws 30 pitches in an inning, and then he might rediscover it in the third inning, and then the fourth inning, and then the fifth inning. And part of it, you know, at first I just assumed it was a mechanical issue. Something would go out of whack. Uh, But it's not. It's something else. If that's mental, it's mental. Again, it's hard to speak when you're not inside some guy's head. Uh, whatever it ends up being, he he's never really been able to work through whatever is bugging him when he's not throwing with command. But uh, to me, one of the things that I've noticed at his time in Memphis this year, and it's not consistent, uh, it depends on who's catching, but when he loses command of his fastball, if you have a catcher who's willing to just call the cutter or the slider, maybe 10 times in a row, it kind of gets him going again. It's it almost like serves as like resetting. You know how like when you have the old Nintendo and you put the thing in and you got to kind of press the reset button yeah. and you blow on it a little bit. And like, I think with him sometimes he just gets so worried about fastball command that he just needs to do something else for a while. And it almost works to reset him. Uh, but I don't think he's ever going to have plus command. And I think, understanding how difficult it is to be a middle of the rotation starter. Uh, And I I don't think a lot of people realize how rare it is to have a middle of the rotation starter. I think that that is like the ultimate ceiling for somebody like that because of how hard it is with more than likely a a back end swingman role and maybe even uh, an impact bullpen arm. See you bringing up Cabrera is interesting to me because I've almost gotten to the point where, you know, maybe this guy's 
best value to the major league team is just coming in for an inning, like out of the bullpen. Uh, you know, now that being said, there's not much reason for any of us to believe that the major league coaching staff can get him not to walk people in that role either, because we've seen, you know, Helsley has, uh, you know, I think taken a step or two back this year. Um, but I, I, I'm interested to see how they, how they approach that. Or if they do get to a point where it's just like, we're going to use him uh, in the bullpen because this isn't going to work. Yeah. Well, and Ben, we, I think we've talked about that too, with just these guys with these huge walk rates, you know, and uh, I was just looking Oviedo's had a, a little North of 12% this year. Uh, you know, Gant was obviously up at, you know, 18, which was, you know, just unplayable, but, but um, those guys, yeah, to me, and, and I would put Cabrera in that too, in the bullpen, they only have to face three hitters. So you, you have a little bit of a, a way out if it's like, oh, this is, this is not the night we can go to plan B, whereas you don't have that starting. So, th- so I agree. That's interesting with Oviedo. I got to tell you in my gut, and I, the numbers don't quite bear this out, but in my gut, I think Johan Oviedo is a better pitcher than Dakota Hudson. I'm not a Dakota Hudson fan. I think Dakota Hudson is like name brand John Gant. Like, I just don't see much there. The walk rate is too high. The, 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 you know, doesn't strike out enough guys, lots of contacts. Uh, don't love it. So I don't know. Yeah, I'm with you. I, I, Dakota Hudson gets by because he gets grounders, right? That's, it's just that yeah. simple thing. Well, yeah. I mean, it's that sinker. It's, you know, and he's someone I, I'm much more, I mean, Hudson's walk rate is so bad that it's impossible to apologize away. <laughs> but if there is, a type of pitcher that I have more of a belief in their ability to minimize their walk rate moving forward. Um, it's someone with Dakota, with a Dakota Hudson type sinker because it's so good that if he, if he is able to harness it and just mature and get more of a feel, um, I, I think he, he could do that and lower it, but you know, you hear in some of these broadcasts and stuff, people are like, well, Dakota Hudson will be coming back. And I'm like, oh, great. Just what the team needs are some more walks, yeah. you know, and it, it right. is worrisome because you you look at the profile of so many pitchers on this team and it's just there are there's just way too many walks. And I, I don't I don't get how some of them uh, have not made any improvement and some of them have even gotten worse Uh you know, and, and it is definitely very concerning. Um, I wanted to see, uh, what you thought we, we kind of touched on Liberator. Um, but it seems to me that the team was hoping his 2021 season in AAA would go a little bit better than it's gone so far. Yeah. I, um, there was a rumor going around. It would have been that Tuesday start that Seamart had, uh, where it looked like they were going to pull Seamart out of the, the rotation, and Libertor was going to get that start. And it kind of sounded, just talking with some people, that it was as close to happening as it possibly could. Like they had packed up Libertor's stuff, and he was going to get that start, uh, but it didn't happen. And it, his season definitely hasn't gone the way that the Cardinals maybe thought it would. I, I don't think. 
I don't know exactly what the Cardinals expected being as aggressive with the kids as they were, as they were specifically Thompson and Libertor. Uh, there was going to be struggle along the way. I just thought that in their minds, they thought, all right, these are two kids we kept at the alt site who we've, who have been working with our coaches. Uh, Thompson was sec trained, you know, Libertor is our crown jewel. Uh, we're going to bring them up and they'll be able to hold their own at AAA. What's the worst that could happen. And the worst that could happen is that hitting was way above way ahead of, of pitching minor league wide. And it's starting to kind of even out a little bit now, not a lot, but even out a little bit. Uh, his command, so I have this whole thing about his mechanics, and me and this guy, Farmer Vala on Twitter, have been going back and forth about this for, for a couple of years now since the Cardinals traded for him. When he plants, his body, his hips don't like come around right, and it causes his arm and his hips to be out of sync. And I think sometimes when that happens, he loses command. Uh, and it makes a lot of sense when you think about it. And his command will leave balls right over the middle of the plate. And his fastball in particular is not lively. Uh, that's part of the reason why it's important for him to get his velocity up. Because it's not one of these balls that moves. It doesn't have a ton of RPMs on it. It doesn't It doesn't move. And that's kind of the other issue with his pitches. Like, I love his slider and I love his changeup. I think, personally, he should be throwing those pitches 60% of the time. That seems like a lot. Uh, but those are his two best pitches. His curveball is good against lefties. He should utilize the curveball against lefties as often as possible. Uh, not too much because advanced lefties hit it. But he should use it enough to keep them off balance and then go slider change it pretty regularly and stay away from that fastball as much as possible unless he has the velocity up on it. Uh, but he early on in the year, he was not getting away with that fastball at all. Didn't matter if you use it up in the zone or down in the zone. Th- that thing was just getting hit. And then he started ticking up the velocity and was having a little bit more success, uh, was really utilizing that that change up off of his slider, started having success. And then now he's just kind of a muddled mess. Like the, the, the perfect example is the, the last start where his first three innings, he was unhittable. Fastball high 90s or mid 90s. Change up slider working off of each other beautifully, mixing in the curveball against lefties. And then everything just kind of like tired out. It just tuckered out and he started getting hit and he got hit hard. And when he's getting hit hard, it's not line drives, it's balls over the wall. And so like, that's, that's just what that young man needs to work on. He needs to, in my opinion, you know, he throws a two seam and a four seam. I think he needs to commit to a two seam full throttle and work low in the zone and then just roll change up slider off the, the, the sinker low in the zone. Uh, but, you know, maybe against lefties still you utilize that four-seamer so that he can drop the curveball off the four-seamer high in the zone. Yeah. Uh, I, I just think he needs – he just needs seasoning. You know, he's an advanced pitcher for his age still. He still does some really interesting things. Uh, but he he just needs time. You know, they, they all just need time right now. Yeah. Well, and you, you hit on one of the two things that's always made me nervous about Libertor as like a kind of crown jewel of your uh, of your minor leagues as a pitcher goes. Number one, the Rays traded him away. And I feel like the Rays don't give up on any like if the Rays get, if the Rays let him go, they know something we don't know. But and that's just my own personal paranoia about that. But two the fact that his fastball is not anything impressive that that really concerns me uh you know i just feel like as a, a minor league guy to come up and be that kind of field guy that I, I mean i know there's there's examples there's guys that can do that but that to me that potentially has the profile of a of a 
you know, a, a young crafty guy who comes up and just gets crushed. Like professional hitters just can sit on that breaking stuff and just destroy it. So I don't yeah, that's, know. That's my concern too. You know, and it it's just enough of a concern that even when he is raising his velocity and getting it by hitters, I understand still how important it is for him to use the slider and change up enough to yeah. keep hitters off balance from the fastball. Like that's why, that's why I say not just because the slider and his changeup are his two best pitches in my opinion, right. but because I know how important it's going to be for his success. If that fastball isn't at its max velocity uh, to have success with the fastball. Right. Well, I think back to like a Michael Walker, like another like guy who moved, you know, moved through pretty quickly, you know, had like the, the super plus change up, but also had like a very good fastball, like not great control, but like, you know, he, he could, guys would swing and miss at his fastball, y- young kind of pre injury, Michael Walker. And yeah. I just feel like that's the, the guys that come through, you know, that's what they, you know, Carlos Martinez go, you know, just any, anybody who comes through and has, you know, has that sort of top of the rotation type stuff. I mean, how many guys are there that are top of the rotation type pitchers that don't have, you know, that don't have people who swing and miss at their fastball, frankly, I don't know. Yeah. We started this by talking about Lance Lynn, right? No. Yeah. You can get away with having multiple fastballs if they're good, but you can't yeah. get away with having multiple off-speed pitches if you don't have a good fastball. You might yeah. be able to live a little, but yeah. yeah, no, I'm with you. It's it's my big concern. It's uh, As I started doing my Dirty 35 or what will probably be a Dirty 40 or whatever I'm going to end up settling on for prospects, like – I'm not as bullish on him as most, you know, I, he's, he's prospect number five right now. He's not prospect number one. And if I'm being honest, I probably could have pushed him back even further than that. Uh, and it, it all stems from my concerns about his fastball. Uh, yeah. I mean, watching him this year, I, I've had a few moments where I'm, I have thought to myself, what are we doing here? And what does everyone else see that I don't? Yeah. yeah. So if I can, if I can share with you, uh, in my DMs with my scouting friends that I've made over the years um, that work for industry, you know, work in the industry, uh, they say the same thing. And I, I, up until recently, I hadn't reached out about it, but I was getting so frustrated. Uh, I was getting frustrated before the Baseball America thing happened because I didn't read the Baseball America list. Uh, I had people in my DMs asking me about the Baseball America list. Because uh, that's just how my life is now. Or Fangraphs. I've Fangraphs put out their list. People coming to my DMs. I don't want to know it. I don't want to see it. I just want to do my own thing. Uh, but it, people were coming in, and I think they had Lib as their number one, and that frustrates me. Uh, so I was asking some of my some of the contacts I've made, or some of the other people in the industry, and it seems like maybe industry wide there are a lot of question marks, except for one outlet. Uh, and so that's, there's just a lot of things to really keep in mind there, but yeah, I, we aren't the only ones who are asking that question. That's, that is it. There's underground noise about that too. Yeah. Well, and I will say the, the uptick in velocity is something that happened this year that was really encouraging to me. That was like, Oh, maybe, you know, this is something he can add there. And of course, as you mentioned, you've got to, you know, got to remember his age. He's, he's yeah. super, super young to be at triple a and he's so young that for us to look at and say, well, he can't get swings and misses on his fastball. Like he, he could still develop and, you know, he could come in and, you know, a year or two years and be like, Oh geez, like this guy's, you know, he, he found something, he added velocity. Maybe he, he focused on the two seamer, what, you know, whatever. So, um, 
I, you know, I, I, I definitely still see the potential there, but it's interesting to hear that you share some of those concerns as well. So I'm just looking, thinking here. So we talked about Gorman and Libertor, and I feel like both of them were, were talking about guys who we think maybe play a role at some point next year. But it sounds like we're, we're concerned that the Cardinals are going to pen them in from to like, you know, starting lineup and rotation from opening day. Um, which is a little concerning. And I think it speaks to how many, frankly, how much work they have to do this offseason. I'd also like to point out from our previous conversation, if Dakota Hudson and Johan Oviedo both are not in the starting rotation, the Cardinals need to acquire about 15 starting pitchers between now and the start of next year because they're going to have Jack Flaherty and maybe Adam Wainwright, and that's about it. So Yeah, and at this point, they'd be dumb not to bring back Wade LeBlanc. I mean, you know, like it's all – it's crazy. Yeah. You know, Brian Helsley, real fast. I just want to throw something out there because, you know, Helsley's one of my, he was one of my favorite prospects. Yeah. And I've always been on the make Helsley a starter bandwagon. Yeah. Uh, this offseason was the first offseason that he didn't prepare to be a starter. They told him, there's no way you're going to be a starter. Uh, you're a relief <laughs> arm now. And he tried to prepare different and tried to train different to prepare himself for it. And I personally believe, uh, my own personal beliefs, is that. The way that he prepared, however it was, uh, not sticking with his routine is why he seems to be taking steps backwards. There are times when he's really good, but there are times when he is vulnerable in the worst possible way. Uh, I see this deficiency in starting pitchers. Uh, I see a team that might go into next season assuming that Jake Woodford has taken a huge step forward and Oviedo and Hudson and think that they're fine. And if that's the case, then – you might as well put Helsley back in the mix. You know, we have, you know, we haven't even talked about Moseliak floated the idea of Jordan Hicks as a starter yeah. this last yeah. week. Now, now, first of all, I, two reactions to that. Number one, that's insane. He's only thrown 38 innings in the last three years, and it's all been as a reliever. But I'm going to say just on the other side of things, I feel like his profile actually could potentially yeah. work a little better as a starter than, frankly, Alex Reyes. Uh, you know, yeah. and that was how they were brought up to him as well. Uh, but it would still be a, an amazing project were they yeah. were they to get it there. But I don't it know. Would, Kyle, what do you think? Do you think that's? I mean, was that just throwing shit at the wall, or you think that's something they might actually? Explain? No, I, I think I. You know, uh, obviously, I have a connection with the Hicks family. Uh, I have not talked to them about this at all, but I have. Uh, I, I think it's the right move. I think it's worth trying, and I think you know he was on the mound throwing over the over the weekend. Uh, wasn't throwing it full throttle or anything like that. But with the minor league season going into, you know, September this year, uh, lasting, I love the idea, as long as they can commit to this idea of him ending the year at the minor leagues, stretching out a little bit, stretching out a little bit, and just seeing how it looks, uh, I'm all for it. But if they're going to do it, they can't mess around with him at the major leagues at all not out of the bullpen not as a three inning starter or a four inning starter or a five inning starter for the end like they can't mess around with it it has to be something that they commit to if he's healthy this year at the minor league level to end the minor league season okay i've i've got another uh if you were a decision maker for the cardinal question uh cardinals question uh kyle uh yadier molina is a free agent and there's been reports that they're discussing a potential extension. If you were the Cardinals front office, would you sign, given your internal options, let's say you're not, you are not signing a free agent whose name is not Yadier Molina, 
right? So given their internal options, would you sign Molina to an extension? And if you would, how many years would you give him and why? First off, we wouldn't have a choice because Bill DeWitt would say, hey, this guy makes me money hand over fist. You've got to bring him back for X amount of money. Uh, if we're just talking about the internal options, I wouldn't. I would like something. Uh, and I love I love Andrew Kisner. He's a great kid. Uh, but I would want something there to protect him a little bit more than that. You know, whether that's Wilson Ramos or something like that. You know, like a player like Jan Gomes. Like I, I would want something like that to back up Andrew Kisner. Uh, and if it were me... In that situation, I would have to bring Yachty back. And if he was only willing to sign a two-year deal, then I would run Andrew Kisner and Ali Sanchez. I just I I would do it unless unless he wants to make three million dollars or four million dollars or something like that. Uh, and maybe that is the case. Maybe he drops down from nine five or whatever it is to four or five or whatever it ends up being. But uh, you're never going to be in a situation with the front office and the coaching staff where Yachty is going to be willing to take on some type of viable timeshare. So. It's either him or the alternative, you know, like So I think at some point you need to make a decision. Uh, and if you're getting the Yachty you've gotten since he came off of the IL, that's just not good enough. Uh, what is your impression? Uh, Mosellock gave an interview earlier this week uh, where he basically, basically said Kisner is not the future at catcher for us. He said it's Herrera. And uh, Herrera has not had a great year. What what would be your your ETA for Herrera making his St. Louis debut? Herrera is a better catcher than I gave him credit for. Uh, I'm not saying he's major league caliber yet. He's not there. But he'll be a, he will be a serviceable catcher. And, you know, he's a better framing at the lower, especially specifically the low pitch in the zone. I've been really impressed with that. And, again, it's so hard to tell because as bad as the major league umpires are, the minor league umpires are worse exponentially as you work down the ladder. Uh, So it's tough. It's hard to quantify Avon Herrera because when you look at his stats, they're not the most impressive thing. But I think he's one of these minor league players who outperform the stats you're seeing. He has an emphasis on working counts that I think hurts him a little bit. And when I think he he commits to being a little bit more aggressive, uh, especially in like 1-0 counts or 2-1 counts, I think you would see uh, more countable stats, more uh, digestible stats for your average fan. Uh, but I would not say he's ready next year. Uh, and I wouldn't say he'd be even ready maybe the year after. Uh, I, I just want to see a more developed player there. He's a good player, and he definitely has the potential to be uh, the Cardinals' answer at catcher for many, many years. Uh, the other thing that Ivan Herrera possesses, that uh, Ivan Herrera possesses, that no one else has ever possessed, is Yachty's blessing. He's close with Yachty. He's the first one that's been able to break through to Yachty um, for whatever reason. And I wouldn't be surprised if Yachty that's, is the one. That's because to... Yachty also doesn't believe he's going to be ready for three years. So Yachty's like, hey, I'm going to play for another three years. Yeah, I'll tell, I'll, I'll accept this guy. Yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm sure I wouldn't doubt if that's it. Like, you know, until three years on down the road when he wants another three-year extension. And he's like, uh, this Herrera guy, he's yeah. just not good enough. He wouldn't give Carson Kelly his cell phone number. but you know, Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And you know, you've we've heard under like we've we've heard stories about maybe Yachty not being the most supportive to his backups. Uh, 
so I, I don't know. I, I felt I felt bad for Kisner. Um, it wasn't even like the comments that Avon Herrera was their long-term answer at catcher. It was all of the comments that weren't quoted on Twitter that kind of led into it about like yeah. maybe maybe Kisner having to go back to Triple A, yeah. and it, it, it was almost like. He was dismissive of the fact that Kisner has not been given a chance at the major league level and like almost blaming it on, on, on Kiz. And it were, those were the comments that really stuck with me. Not the quote about Herrera being the heir apparent. Yeah. And he, his, he needs to develop and he might play winter ball, uh, you know, in order to like basically be able to play. Um, but you know the Cardinals. If you don't, if you don't hit when you're given the opportunity, I, you know, you tend to get out of the organization pretty quick, and um, and so it's not terribly surprising. But it was, uh, it was interesting to hear them still talk about Kisner like he is a prospect who needs to develop, but the next step in his development is Major League Baseball. Yeah. So how is he going to develop if he's not playing in the majors? And and he's another guy where it's what does he have left to prove? And basically, as a professional baseball player, he has to prove he can play in the majors. And he's they need to do something, especially with Yachty playing hurt, clearly playing hurt, yeah. and and not well at all. Yeah. Um, and it's just, it's very clear that, that no one manages Yachty. Like yeah. Yachty decides what's going to happen when it comes to his playing time. And so I, and I am a huge Yachty or Molina fan. Yeah. And like this last off season, I was just like, give him, I, why are we even talking about this? Just like, what do you want? You want 10 million? You want 12? Great. You know, um, I, I was, uh, a little happy that they were talking to him about an extension. Cause I would like to have just one healthy season, uh, especially with this weird recreation as a power hitter earlier in the year. Uh, I want to, I want to, I would really love to see, you know, a full Yachty season of the 40 year old power hitter <laughs> that he well, kind of unfurled. To, yeah. to start this year, you know? Yeah, and the, yeah. and the way that you'll see that season is if they give 30% of the starts to Kisner instead of Yachty. And that's the thing that I just, it's it blows my mind that it doesn't even just seem to get through to, to you know, Yachty's camp or whatever. I mean, he's as strong as he came out at the beginning of this season. You know, if he could have maintained and been that player, think of the value that he would have had. Yeah. And it just seems so obvious that with his age and everything else, it's just the playing every day broke him down. But, you know, if, if Kisner's getting, you know, a, a start and a half a week, even, uh, you know, then I think potentially you get that better, you know, you get that better version of Yachty there. You know, you find that equilibrium where, you know, Kisner's there. It's, it's, it's so obvious what they need to do. It's very obvious what they need to do. It's clear that Yachty is not interested in that. It doesn't seem like, Schilt is empowered to or takes it upon himself to 
you know, to dictate that. And, you know, the organization sort of, it's come down to, are they going to re-sign him or not? Like, it's almost like it's off the table, this very obvious solution to Ben, your kind of an original question is clearly what they should do is they should re-sign Yadier Molina for a year, but move him into, a, you know, a timeshare role with either with Kisner or if they don't think Kisner's it, go find, a, a you know, a, a viable major league caliber guy who could, you know, come in and play it. There is a part of me that wonders how much of this is DeWitt still carrying with him the LaRusa, Ozzie Smith, Royce Clayton situation where Hmm. uh, that went sideways and, you know, then Ozzie announced his retirement kind of mid season. And this was really the first uh, legacy you know, all time great that they had. And I mean, obviously under this ownership group um, and just kind of the way that that ended. And it also does all come down to that. These, these guys are a little bit crazy, you know, like they're crazy. Like they're, they are all time greats because they have a belief in themselves that most normal human beings don't have. And Right. And so, yeah, uh, you know, like I, I don't want to the reason Yadier Molina is a first ballot Hall of Famer is the same reason Mike Schilt can't get him to take a day off, Yeah, you, you know, and, right. and so it's but there's also something I think to this in a larger context, too, with the way Schilt manages uh, and it's. It's like the opposite, and we've talked about this with the Dodgers. The Dodgers seem to be trying to shorten players' seasons. And by mm-hmm. that, I mean, yep. you're not going to start 150 games, no. uh, you know, unless you're Mookie Betts, but probably not even then. Yeah. You're going to start 130, and then we're going to have you at full bore for October. Mm-hmm. And they seem to get buy in, and, and then they have flexible. Uh, roster construction and buy-in from the players and and they implement this strategy and it seems to be to reduce the workload so that when October comes we have all of our best players ready to go and we can put the pedal to the metal and and go to the finish line and Yachty would benefit from that but so would Paul Goldschmidt and Nolan Arenado and you know it was like it seemed like it was pulling teeth to get Sosa a start in the month yeah. of April. And it's like, if you, yeah. if you can get him two starts a week, just rotating, you know, from second base to third base, just get him in to give guys breaks. Like you're, that's going to pay dividends in September. If you're in a close race and then potentially in October. And I'm not saying that the Cardinals are where they are in the standings because they're, they're not doing that. But when you look at the way this team is structured, and the way that their manager manages, it just feels like it's, we have our guys. This is our 150 game starter here. This is our 150 game starter here. And I, you know, Arenado's one of the best players in baseball. Goldschmidt is still very good, but it, it also felt like they were like, Oh, and here's Tommy Edmond. He is our 155 start leadoff hitter and second baseman. And, That inflexibility in their thinking, uh, you know, Yachty is a singular case, but if you look at the way that she uses the rest of the players, I mean, Dylan Carlson, 
you know, yeah. like he's he's played just about every day. He rarely gets a day off. And this is a guy who's never been through a full major league season before. And also they don't have much outfield depth, which is a, another problem, but you no. can't tell me that you couldn't get Carlson a day off against a righty. If you had acquired the, the lefty outfield bat that I thought for certain they would acquire at the trade yeah. deadline, but it's just like, you just go through this and it's like, what are we, what are we using as our organizing principle here? You know, if if you want to be competitive and you want to win World Series, then you need to take a look at what's working across baseball, and in particular, I think in LA, where they do have their core players, but they have they are making a very concerted effort to get them more days off to make it easier for them to play longer into October. And I don't understand why the Cardinals seem to continue to approach us. And also, by the way, it's something that Tony La Russa did. Yeah, that's like, uh-huh. this is nothing new. Like Tony La Russa would get his guys breaks and he would keep his bench players fresh. And then when an injury happened, he had belief across the board that this guy can play because he's been playing, even if, you know, like, not that Abraham Nunez was good because Tony La Russa believed in him early in the year or anything, but I think that there's a clear recurring pattern amongst Tony La Russa teams that they, they tend to absorb injuries pretty well. And the most glaring example nowadays uh, is over in Chicago. I mean, the White Sox had some huge injuries and he kept them afloat and it's because he, he engages his bench and, uh, expects them to play and be productive and contribute. And this team this year for the St. Louis Cardinals is not built in that way. And it's not managed in that way. And it's been pretty frustrating. Yeah. And then when you compare that to a comment that you made earlier too, about how if a player comes up and doesn't hit, they're gone. Yeah, It's funny how the reverse of that is if a player comes up and hits, they stay for years and years and years as a starter for 150 games a year. Yeah. 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 Edmund Kamatami. Um, (laughs) Even, you know, I love Paul DeYoung, but DeYoung comma Paul too, you know, and and, and Bader comma Harrison. And and this year he's actually like, there's been some real progress there and I'm a lot more optimistic about him than ever. But up until about a month ago, I would have absolutely listed him as the, the very same thing. Yeah. Yeah. So, all of those guys, even Tyler O'Neill, who yeah. for years and years was getting limited playing time and then, you know, gets forced to play every day for 60 games. And now he can't really get a day if he's healthy. And he's a player who's dealt with health issues. Maybe it's a good idea to get him a Sunday off after a Saturday night. I, I, I just I'm with you. That's that's been my biggest frustration with Mike Schilt during all of this uh, these last couple of years. Well, I mean, their backup outfielder is a guy they signed as a minor league free agent infielder, you know, so like yeah. Yeah, Jose Rondon. Yeah. yeah who's going yeah. to play? I guess, I guess uh new bars back up now, but um, you know, but uh, even then, you know what, you know what he'll do is it'll be Edmund out in the outfield to give one yeah, of those guys, yeah. a rest, those guys a rest and Carpenter yeah. at second, yeah. you know, and that and maybe that's right. Fourth. <laughs> exactly. And maybe that's the right thing to do. Maybe it's not, but, I know that Lars Newbar isn't getting at bats uh, anywhere, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I, that's not good for his development after missing an entire 2020 year. You know, uh, there's just so many questionable roster construction moves and roster execution moves. Yeah. Uh, and it's funny to me because you hear a lot of people 
uh, blaming the front office and some people blaming the coaching staff. And uh, Mr. DeWitt, who is well worth his blame because they traded a prospect so they didn't have to pay J.A. Happ. Uh, this is an organizational-wide like calamity right now. Uh, it's bad managing. It's bad front office. It's bad mm-hmm. roster construction. And it's ownership that feels tight. Uh, whether we think they are or not, uh, they feel it and they're showing it. And it's from the top down. Yeah. Yeah. Well, on that note, uh, <laughs> we, <laughs> no, we've uh, we've gone off for a good uh, a good chunk here, and I, I've enjoyed talking to you guys. I don't want to get too far into uh, talking about uh, Schilt and things like that. I feel like we could end up going until uh, you know going all night. And you know, the structure of this podcast, we do have to get it out on the off day, so we do have a time limit here. We have to uh, we have to hit. So um, so I just I thought maybe we'd wrap up and talk about what we're looking for uh, kind of the rest of this season in this kind of prospects landscape we've been talking about here. Uh, I'll go ahead and jump in first. Cause I don't know if you guys had anything te- teed up for this, but I am going to be watching two guys that we didn't talk about today who have become my two favorite players in the minor league system. And that's uh, Jordan Walker and Mason Wynn, because first of all, I love them as players just their tools and everything but also they've got this great like kind of like buddy comedy thing going between them they just seem like really fun like great guys and so i'm just very excited to see them continue to uh uh, you know, to, to rise through the system together. Um, I know I told you guys, I, I guess I think I mentioned on the podcast too, I, I had a chance to get to one Peoria game. It was the last series before Wynn got called up. So I didn't get to see him, but I did get to see Jordan Walker. And there are a few guys at the minor league level, when you see them physically in person, you're like, oh my God. And he was one of those guys. <laughs> like that is, that is a, that is a grown ass man right there. <laughs> I know he's only 19, but it was like, holy cow, this, you know, especially when you're watching the lower leagues like that every now and then you're like, um, back in, uh, uh Ames growing up like they had the like sort of like midnight basketball league and uh, every now and then Fred Hoiberg would show up and play in the midnight basketball league and he it, you know it was it was noticeable when he was out there <laughs> you're like oh some of these other guys also like play college basketball but he is a lot better than, all, than everybody else that's out here so anyway for all those reasons I, I I love those guys they're moving quickly through the system um I'm just excited to to see where they where they go. So that's that's what I'm going to be looking for. Um, I don't know, Ben, Kyle, when do you want to jump in? Uh, I'm going to be watching Nick Plummer. Uh, I he's uh, his plate approach, kind of his pedigree as a prospect. Then you know him kind of falling a little bit out of favor. Uh, there was the really good. Uh, post on Fangraphs that had some, kind of some of his quotes and, and the Cardinals uh, working with him on his plate approach. And then him coming out and having a wonderful traditional Texas League season for a left-handed hitter. And uh, I look at him and I see someone who could be a very useful player for this team uh, for, for years to come. Uh, in particular, if they're going to stick with the current th- big three as the main outfielders with Bader and, and O'Neill and Carlson, I think Plummer could be a very nice complimentary player. And so I'm interested to see uh, how the rest of his season goes. Cause he's had a great season so far. And then uh, uh, 
whether or not he gets promoted, I guess, because uh, they promoted Burleson, and it feels like Plummer could be up there too. But then you have, you know, Newtbar needs to get at bats as well when he's not in St. Louis, and it's just it's a it's a weird dynamic there. And so I'm interested to see how the Cardinals uh, choose to use Plummer here over the rest of the year. I like both of your answers quite a bit. Uh, Nick Plummer was the first thing that came to my mind. I want to see when he's at Memphis, and I also want to know why it's taking so long. The Cardinals don't have a reason to keep him at Springfield. It's stupid. It's pointless. You know what? He just set the Springfield record for consecutive games getting on base uh, and then added one on top of it tonight. There's no reason for him to be at Springfield anymore. And I love Alec Burleson. I've I've been adopted into East Carolina University. Uh, I am I am officially an ECU pirate. Uh, I, I, like the, those people are crazy, uh, crazy great college baseball fans, and they love Alec Burleson. Uh, and because of that, I'm not allowed to think anything other than just pure love for Alec Burleson. But that promotion should have gone to Nick Plummer. Uh, the Cardinals don't have a reason to hold him back. There's, there is not a reason at all. He's old uh, compared to all the other prospects. Uh, he's either, you're either going to need to protect him from the rule five or he's a minor yeah. league free agent. And technically he's capable of being a minor, a minor league free agent. But I think that they're going to use that 2016 season uh, where he wasn't rostered at all, where he was against him to suppress his years, to have him next year. And I think that the reason that he and Delvin, again, maybe this is me just trying to out-chess match myself as I'm trying to chess match John Mazalak. Uh, I think that the two of them will stay at, at Springfield so that the Cardinals don't have to add them to the 40-man, thinking that people won't see them at Memphis and key in on them and take flyers on them uh, in the Rule 5 draft. I, I almost right. feel like, not that they're not that they're screwing with their their uh, service time per se. But I do think that they are trying to be smart about those two in general uh, when it comes to getting them on the 40 man, especially with as tight as their 40 man is right now. And, and some of the other things that they'll have to do to get guys on the 40 to protect from the roll five. So plumber is one uh, Mason Wynn is another, like just in general, because he and Walker have a buddy cop kind of thing, but Mason Wynn just has that with everyone. He is He's just that kid. He just has that personality. And that's, you know, other than his extreme tools and his ability to play baseball, uh, that sets him apart. He's a lot of fun. From an organizational-wide thing, I'm going to be keeping an eye on pitching. Uh, the pitching has been terrible. Uh, it seems like it's getting a little bit better and better, specifically at the lower levels. Uh, some of the Peoria, the right-handed Peoria arms are starting to take some positive steps forward. Uh, I want to keep a close eye on that. And as the 2021 draft picks start finding their way into the organization, uh, I'm going to be keeping a close eye on that too. Uh, especially like guys like Gordon Graceffo, who I think is already at Palm Beach and has made like three or four appearances. Um, although Palm Beach has only played like four games in the last three weeks or something like that because of rain in Florida. I, I just, I'm going to be keeping a close eye on that. And uh, the, the other little intriguing things like Jordan Hicks, I'm, I, that's, that's where my close eye is going to be on. I, I can't wait oh, to see yeah. what they do with that. You know, uh, j continued, the continued pitching success, I think is probably the most important thing. See which one of these kids are going to take a step forward uh, because organizational depth is up for grabs for probably the first time since I've been writing about prospects. That's for sure. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, if, if Jordan Hicks pops up in September making some starts or doing some, like, you know, multi-inning work in the minors, I think Fox Sports Midwest should broadcast those games as opposed to, you know, whatever the big league club is doing that week. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Kyle, uh, we've chatted long with you again because it's always just so amazing to get your your insights and just fun fun chatting with you as well. So so thank you again so much for, for coming on and, and talking with us. Uh, guys, anything else before we wrap it up? No, uh, I second uh, Ben's sentiment, and we're really excited for the new Dirty 45 uh, or how, <laughs> however however deep the list goes this year. Really looking forward to it. <laughs> Thanks, guys. I, again, just thank you for having me on. I love talking with you guys. All right. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, you guys, uh, they're the li- when I say you guys now, I'm referring to you, the listener. See, that was kind of a little shift I did there in focus. Uh, no, you've been listening to Cardinals Off Day uh, again all through August. Uh, we've got Monday off days, so we will be back with you next Monday. We'll see you then. <laughs>